Acts chapter 11. What happens after Easter? I know for most of us, sugar coma followed by sugar detox. In my trash cans right now, there are innumerable wrappers and at least five boxes emptied of peeps. But really, what happens after Easter? What happens after the good news that he is risen? The Gospels end with four events. You can write these into your listening guide. The resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Then his appearance to his disciples and to others. Verse 36 of that same chapter. As they were talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Then his ascension, Luke chapter 24, verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And right before he ascended, he gave them a mandate. Verse 46. Thus it is written, this is Jesus speaking, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you were witnesses to these things. So what happens after Easter? We receive a mandate. A mandate, in your listening guide, is an authoritative command, an authorization to act given to a representative. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he gives them a command. Therefore, go Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They had a command and they had the authority to act because we act differently when we know we have some measure of authority. A few years ago, Jackson was in third grade, Annabeth was in kindergarten. I asked them, do you ever tell people at church that your dad is the pastor? Jackson said no, which was not surprising Because at that time, he was really sad for me that I was not, in his words, a cool astronaut. (laughs) But Annabeth said, yes, yes, I tell people all the time that my dad is the pastor. And I had this fatherly pride swelling up inside of me. And then she said, because it means I get two pieces of candy when I leave church and not just one. (laughs) We act differently when we know we have... Authority. We have a command and we have the authority for this mandate. It's a mandate for the church to multiply from one believer to two believers, from two Bible studies to four Bible studies, from four churches to eight churches. We see this mandate unfold throughout the book of Acts. We could essentially pick any of its chapters, but we'll anchor ourselves in chapter 11 this morning. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecutions that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Acts chapter 6 tells us the story of the very first person to give their life for Jesus' name, a young man named Stephen. Many have followed in his steps, including, history tells us, ten, at least ten of the original twelve disciples, even two weeks ago in Egypt. Followers of Jesus lost their lives as they were worshiping. If you go to Facebook or Twitter after church is over, uh, you'll notice that many churches 
chose to start a very practical teaching series today. Something about parenting, marriage, um, maximizing joy in this life. Something very practical. And it makes sense and it's smart. Because on Easter, a church has more guests than it will have the rest of the year. And if you can offer something helpful to people, they're more likely to come back. It's a great idea. Maybe we'll do it next year. You can see that my first point after Easter is you may be persecuted. Not a good church growth strategy. But I think it does show the power of Easter. I think it shows what that empty tomb meant to those original disciples. That they would say, we will go all the way with this. We will give our last measure of devotion. It's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That I might know the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. The oppression of Jesus believers takes on many forms. Something as simple as a heated and personal attack on your faith could mean that you are invited to less and less and less, eventually ignored altogether. On a macro level, your representatives stop representing you. Any cultural influence that you have is marginalized and eventually lost. In places around the globe, even right now, believers are passed over for jobs. Governments are actively pushing them down or pushing them aside. Some are being thrown into prisons, and some are gaining their lives by losing them. I think it would be a waste of time to try to predict what that might look like here for us one day. But if or when it would happen, I think we only have to be able to ask ourselves and answer one question. Is Jesus' grave still empty? Because if he is alive, he has my life. If he is risen, then I can rise above. If his grave is empty, then I am full on. Second, in your listening guide, the mandate means I pioneer new frontiers. Verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some among them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So once Stephen was killed back in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 6, excuse me. It set off persecution in and around Jerusalem, so the believers scattered from there, and as they scattered, they naturally told the story of their faith in the resurrected Jesus. But you'll notice that they only told that story to other Jewish people. Why? First, because they were Jewish. Second, because Jesus was Jewish. Third, because they had a natural connection within the synagogue. And fourth, because like us, we tend to be drawn to people who are like us. However, it says, a few Jewish men from Cyprus and Cyrene told their story to the Hellenists. That's to the Greek people living in Antioch. And that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, because that's what we're doing right now. But this had never been done. 
like most of those scattered believers, we tend to stick to who we know and environments in which we are already comfortable. But if we do that, the mandate that Jesus has given us to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name cannot be accomplished. It's over before it even begins. But it says there were some of them. Some of us need to take on a pioneering spirit in the new places that God has placed us recently. New jobs, new teams, new schools, new homes. We've recently moved to a new home, found ourselves on a new street. I've been praying consistently since we moved there that God would give us gospel influence on that street. Last week, Amanda, in the name of gospel influence, whipped up a batch of her mildly famous butterscotch haystacks. Annabeth hand-wrote and colored Easter cards, and they delivered them to our neighbors. I'm also making sure the yard is mowed, because in Cyprus, Christ does not look good if your yard does not look good. (laughs) Because we have an opportunity to love and serve some new people in Jesus' name. It says, but there were some of them. Some of us need to take on some racial frontiers for Jesus' sake. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 11. Just like now, there was racial tension then between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. There was history. There was fear. There was harm. There was stereotyping. There was ignorance. There was hate. All present then, all present now. There's a special opportunity for the church But we have to begin to be intentional. We have to clothe ourselves in empathy. We have to learn to listen. And it's imperative that we stop assuming. We need to stop assuming that our story is everyone's story. We have to stop assuming that we know someone else's motive. We have to stop assuming that we know how another person should feel. We have to stop assuming that our perspective is the right perspective and only perspective. As a church, we have an opportunity to model for our society what unity not only looks like but feels like. And Jesus said people would know us by the way we love one another. But there were some of them. It says, what new place or new person could the mandate of Jesus take you to this week? Number three. The mandate means I will see the power of God. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. When they shared their story of Jesus and how they were personally affected by it, people believed. The mandate to multiply can only happen when the hand of God is involved. There is no system, there is no strategy that can generate genuine faith. Our part is to tell our story of how our lives have been affected, and it's God's responsibility to draw people. I grew up in church, and part of growing up in church at my particular church meant you went to church camp. At church camp, you do all the fun stuff that people at normal camp do, archery, canoeing, swimming, but at the end, you have church, because you can't have church camp without church, or else it's just camp, right? And so every night we would gather together for church. I sat on the back row because I was not that interested. Not that that's what any of you are doing uh, on the back row, uh, but that's what I was doing. 
people disinterested on the front rows, I'm sure, today. Uh, <laughs> and so I was sitting in the back row in a metal folding chair. And, you know, I've done that a hundred times, thousands of times, honestly. And you kind of know how church goes. You sing some songs, and then you listen to somebody talk, and then you sing one more song, and then you go. That's just the way, it's like in the Bible somewhere that that's the way church is supposed to be. And so I was in total rhythm of that, just kind of biding my time and saying the songs and not expecting anything, not especially prayerful or interested. And the man got up to deliver the message and opened up his Bible, and something happened to me. And I don't have words to describe what it was other than the ones that are used here in Acts chapter 11, but to say that the hand of God was present. And I had this holy awareness fall on me. Uh, First, that I was separated from God, which was strange to me because I was a church kid. Not especially bad. But I knew that I was separated from God. I also had an awareness in that moment that it was my fault that I was separated from him. That even though my sins were not especially grievous or would make a compelling testimony, even one of them, smallest and minute, was enough to separate me from God. But I also had an awareness that God loved me, that Jesus was the answer to my problem. And so in the metal folding chair in the back row, I said a prayer that I thought I had heard from the scripture. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. The hand of God. It's the only way I can explain it. I don't remember what the man talked about. It started before he even started his sermon. So it wasn't his wise and persuasive words. And we all desire that. We all want to live a supernatural life. But I think what the scripture would show us, if you want to experience the supernatural power of God, you have to live with a supernatural purpose. If you want a beyond normal life experience with God, you have to seek to live a beyond normal life. God doesn't move his hand for what any hand could do. We need to find a purpose worthy of the hand of God, which thankfully we see in the next step. Next, the mandate means I must persevere in purpose. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Those original disciples of Jesus became the original leaders of the original church in Jerusalem. And they heard the rumors of what was happening up in Antioch. And so they sent Barnabas as a representative to see firsthand. And the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. And that's precisely what he did. He encouraged them. We know from this story and from other stories that Barnabas was an important and influential and skilled leader. And he had the characteristics that we want in all of our spiritual leaders. He was a good man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was filled with faith. Look how he encouraged them specifically in verse 23. To be steadfast in purpose. Jesus' mandate to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name is not for the weak-willed, or the faint-hearted. There are many distractions along the road of faithfulness. 
our social media society has severed our attention span. We are attracted to the bright lights of quick change, even spiritually. So we love stories of fast-growing churches. We love out-of-nowhere authors. We love trendy tweets from trendy pastors. It's been to a detriment of our faith. And our faith becomes like a match. Explosive at first with fire. And in seven seconds, it's out. Because there's no heat there. There's no heat from the slow burn of faithfulness. Very few like the slow burn. Like waking up on a Monday morning, opening the scripture, saying, there's only one voice that matters in my life today, and it's not mine. Slow burn of invisible prayer. The kind you can't tweet about. Instagram. The slow burn of showing up week after week in the community of God to encourage and be encouraged. We like something quick, bright, and explosive. We overvalue the start and we undervalue the finish. Barnabas says, be steadfast in purpose. Everyone is a starter. Who will be a finisher? And finally, the mandate means I partner with other Jesus followers. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So once Barnabas saw the grace and power that was happening in Antioch, and how God was pouring out his spirit on all these new believers, he said, there's one person who needs to be here, Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul, we know by another name, Paul. He had once been a persecutor of the church back up in verse 19. So we know some significant time has passed between verse 19, where we started, and verse 25, where Barnabas goes to get Saul. Because in between, Saul saw the resurrected Jesus and became a believer. And more than that, he became a champion of the mandate. Barnabas says, Saul's got to be a part of this. And so he seeks to find Saul. Now remember, there's no GPS, there's no location tag on social media, there's no find my iPhone for Barnabas to use. Because partnering with other Jesus believers is rarely efficient and often inconvenient. Barnabas had a tough choice to make. He could walk the 40 plus hours that it would take to get from Antioch to Tarsus. Or he could take the quicker but costlier, potentially riskier boat ride to get there a little faster. And then he had to hope that Saul was still there when he got there and would want to come back to Antioch with him. Because partnering is not convenient. It's almost always more efficient to do it yourself, but you can't multiply alone. 
I believe that we would never know the name Saul or Paul without Barnabas. Because back when Saul became a believer in Jesus, the church did not want to welcome him in because they thought it was just a ruse so that he could come inside the church and persecute from there. Until Barnabas stood next to him, said, no, he's with me and I trust him and you should too. Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him to Antioch. Two chapters from right now in Acts chapter 13, they're gonna be praying together and God through the spirit is gonna say, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And they're gonna set off on their first missionary journey. They're gonna start lots of churches along the way. Later on, Saul will write letters of encouragement to those churches that they started. We know those letters as Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. He'll write to young ministers that he had mentored to exhort them to keep it up. Timothy and Titus, he'll write to a friend named Philemon. All letters written by the hand of Saul inspired and breathed out by God, filling up our New Testament. But without Barnabas, would we even know them? When I was in my college years, there was an evangelist at our church. That's not really a job that people do anymore. He used to go and preach at revivals, another thing that really doesn't exist anymore. But he would do these week-long church services throughout the Midwest and Every once in a while, he'd invite me to go with him because he saw some random potential in me. I think mostly he just wanted somebody to help him carry his luggage, which I was happy to do at the time. But he would ask me to share my testimony at some of the churches. Sometimes he would give me an opportunity to preach. I'd imitate him and in the imitating of him when I would teach and when I would share, I'd begin to find myself. Just really believed in me, in me in a unique way. He was an important person in my life. In fact, so important that he was one of my groomsmen when Amanda and I got married. At our wedding, we asked seven people to share just a brief uh, blessing or prayer over us as we started our marriage. And when it was his turn, he stood up and he said that he was praying and he believed that one million souls would be affected because of our marriage. I mean, talk about no pressure. So I don't know how many people are here today, but I appreciate you helping me get to a million. number was not that important but what was important is that he believed in the mandate and he believed in the mandate in me and I believe in the mandate in you it's always less convenient to partner but it's the way we multiply who can you be a bridge for Who can you believe in? Who can you pray for? Who can you invite in? You could be more efficient alone, but you can't multiply alone. What happens after Easter? Look at the last sentence in verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Up until this moment, the church was known as disciples, brothers and sisters, saints, people of the way, but it was in Antioch that we became known as Christians. As Christians, we have a mandate from Christ. We are all witnesses. Let's pray.
the spirit of prayer, you speak directly to God. We've prayed together. We've worshiped together. We've opened the scripture together. I just take an opportunity to ask God directly in light of all that, what's my next step? steps. Jesus, we remember your words. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Help us to do that.